Today's sermon text is from Judges 3, verses 7 through 31. You may remember that we're observing longer texts of Scripture over the summer, so I'll not open the sermons with a reading from Scripture. The reading will be sprinkled throughout the sermon, so you benefit greatly from opening up the Bible. If you have a Bible that's in front of you, or, um, well, no, it's not printed in front of you, by opening up the Bible that is in front of you and keeping it open as we go through our time together. So much of our worldviews are built on narratives, very often simple folktales packed enormous amounts of truth and meaning. From them we can learn wisdom, morality. We can learn common sense. And from them we also learn archetypes, figures that become paradigmatic and help us understand the human experience. One such tale is the fable of the tortoise and the hare. In this fable, the tortoise challenges the hare to a race. On the surface, our experience tells us that this is a complete mismatch. The hares are fast and tortoise are slow, but the tale has a surprising ending. The hare trusts his speed too much, so he rests before the end of the race. On the other hand, the tortoise does not trust his speed at all. He trusts his discipline instead. And through perseverance, he beats the much superior opponent and finishes the race first. In some ways, this is true of the judges we meet in our, we're going to meet in our summer journey. They were unlikely heroes who did not win their battles because they were stronger than their enemies. They were saints, and yet they were sinners. Their strength came from their faith. Not a perfect faith, not a flawless faith, but faith nonetheless. Faith in a flawless God. Much good can be accomplished through imperfect faith. Christianity is often counterintuitive. In Christianity, the weak is strong and the strong is weak. The proud is humbled and the humble is exalted. For Christians, we, better, we, we ought to lose our lives so we can gain it. However, the weakness that we experience in Christianity does not lead us to defeat. The weak in Christ is victorious because it is Christ who fights the battle for the weak. The weakness we experience in Christ should then promote in us both humility before God and boldness against our enemies. Friend, if you're new to us and you're not a Christian, we would love for you to know that we are those who are weak. We are who we are because we are weak and not because we are strong. Our weakness has driven us to God. And if there is anything of value 
in us is because of God. Because God strengthens us. We would love for you today to be well acquainted with your weaknesses so that you can experience the power of God as well. Before we dive into our text for today, let me just, let me just remind you a little bit about the context of the book of Judges. So the book of Judges is the seventh book in the Bible. It follows the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, and the book of Joshua. It is actually a sequel to the book of Joshua. While Joshua is about the conquering of the promised land, the book of Judges is about the keeping of the promised land. The promise of the Lord given to Abraham in Genesis 12 was fulfilled at the end of Joshua's ministry. But God's blessing on the people depended on their faithfulness. It depended on their covenant-keeping ability. But what we see in the book of Judges is that Israel wasn't very good at keeping their promises. Six times in the book we read, and again, Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. But God, in His mercy, provided leaders to deliver the people out of the troubles they created for themselves. The name of the book comes from these leaders. The name of the book is the book of Judges. We're going to see today that these leaders were primarily military leaders. They delivered the people not by the power of the pen, as we would think of as a judge today. They delivered the people by the power of the sword. They were warriors. One special feature in the book of Judges is the way it is organized. While the book of Joshua is organized chronologically, it, takes, it begins in the early ministry of Joshua and it ends with Joshua's death. The book of Judges is arranged geographically. We're not giving a lot of notion and parameters of time in the book of Judges. As a matter of fact, we learn later that the period of the Judges lasted 300 years, and if you add up all of the time that the Judges ruled in the time that Israel experienced peace in the land, we realize that the number surpasses 300. So clearly the point of the book is not chronology, but geography. Judges is arranged geographically. It begins with Othniel. We're going to talk about him today. In Judah, close to Jerusalem, the religious epicenter of Israel's life. But it ends with Samson and Dan. As far from Jerusalem as possible, and we'll see today that there's a great distinction between the morality of Othniel and the morality of judges like Samson. In this geographical organization, we see the moral decadence of Israel and its judges. As we saw last week, throughout the book, we'll see 
Israel falling prey to a vicious cycle. We call this the judges cycle, a cycle of sin, servitude, supplication, and salvation. Israel would sin against God and God would hand them over to serve other nations. Israel would present their supplication before God, asking for His deliverance. And God would save Israel by appointing a judge to deliver them. And the cycle would start over again. We'll see this cycle six times in this book. So they will find, we'll meet the first three judges. As the book goes on, we are given more and more information about the judges. Some of the judges that we're going to see today, we don't know much about. But we're going to look at them and we're going to allow three words to guide us through this text. The words are sin, saviors, and sovereignty. So let's consider first the word sin. Downplaying sin is one of the strongest weapons the devil uses against us. There are many ways we could define sin, but ultimately, sin is doing what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the exact indictment that Israel receives in this book. Verse, notice verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a mantra in the book of Judges. As I said before, we'll see this verse repeated six times in this book. And every time this verse is repeated, a new major judge is then introduced. But what was this evil God indicted Israel for? It's a double-sided evil. Look at the second half of verse 7. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. What a terrible thing to forget God, isn't it? We can become so accustomed to our Christian life, to our religious rhythms. We can become so accustomed to a Christianized culture around us that we can assume God. We can experience what swimmers often experience of being plunged in water and yet thirsty for water. What a terrible thing it is to forget the Lord. And here's where sin, al sin always begins. Sin begins when we forget God. We forget He is there. We forget He knows all things. We forget He is good. We forget He is just and righteous. So what happens... When we forget God. When we forget God, we replace Him with a, with a counterfeit God. We never stand before God with a posture of indifference. 
we're either worshipers of God or we are idolaters. Our hearts are either directed towards God or they're pointed towards sin. I've had the privilege of getting to know Phil and Ashley Ladon the past several months. Phil is Ms. Edna Pittman's grandson, and he shared with us a conversation that he had at work a while back. One of his co-workers told him, we were all created to worship, so you will either worship God or you will worship other things. Praise God for co-workers who speak the truth of the gospel to other co-workers, right? This conversation was pivotal for Phil as he understood that he needed to worship the one true God. Praise God for that. This is true, isn't it? Our hearts naturally lean towards worship. We see this in the world of sports, politics. We see this in our relationships, celebrities. Our hearts lean towards worship. And when God is not the, wor- the object of our worship, idols will fill His place. We see this in Israel's tendency to adopt, adopt the false gods of the land. Baal was a fertility god. And Asherah was, was his consort. The Canaanites believed that when Baal was happy, the land would be fertile. So they sought to please Baal by practicing temple prostitution and promiscuity. We can see how this is offensive, greatly offensive, towards a God who calls us to be faithful with our sexuality, don't we see? Don't we see this? I mean, the numerous parallels with our culture are incredible, aren't they? We can even shop at stores anymore without having sexuality and perversion push down our throats. Friends, the number one thing that will get one followers on social media is sex appeal. We see this around us. We often see this in our own families. We often see this very close to us that the idolatry of Israel is not foreign to our culture and is often not foreign to us. So notice God's response. Look at verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is how God responds to sin. He judges sin with His anger. Friends, remember this. If God did not display His wrath, sin would run rampant in our world, and sin would run rampant in our lives. So praise God for His righteous Anger that judges the wicked and leads the faithful to repentance. And how was this anger displayed? Well, let's continue in verse 8. And so what did God do? God sold them into the hand of a king named Cushan Rashathaim. Cushan Rashathaim was likely a king from the land of Cush. And his name is very telling. 
likely a name that was given by Israel to describe their relationship with this king. His name could be translated as Cushan, the double evil. God didn't appoint him to gently correct Israel into the path they slightly veered from. God appointed this king to oppress Israel so that Israel would feel the heavy hand of the Lord. Notice how the development is similar with our second judge, Ehud. Look at verse 12. And again, this is the second time we see this phrase in the book. And again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, the Lord hands them over to this wicked king. Now look at verse 14. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Israel was under Cushan Rashathaim for eight years. But now Israel is under Eglon for 18 years. Things are getting worse. There's a play on word with Eglon's name that I think is telling. His name can be translated as little calf. And in verse 17, we learn that this little calf was a fat man. Likely, he gained his weight by oppressing Israel economically. So in other words, here is Israel serving, or another way of saying serving in the Hebrew language is worshiping. Here is Israel worshiping a fat calf. They're, they're unable to shake off the cycle of sin. Moses goes up to receive the law of the land, and Aaron declares to the people, Behold Israel, the God who delivered you from the land of Egypt. And what does he point them to? To a golden calf. And here again, Israel worships and serves this fattened calf circle of the cycle of idolatry this is true of israel but this is true of all humanity god gives men over to the depravity of their they so desire there are only two things that god will do to the will of men he will either transform it or he will allow us to pursue it as an expression of his judgment israel desires the golden calf I will let them serve this golden calf. Romans 1, 24 through 25. Therefore, God gave them up. These are the Gentiles who were pursuing sexual depravity. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We can't think that in any way God approves of the sin within our lives, even if it seems as though we're getting away with it. God will always respond to sin in righteousness and justice. Do not think that simply because, because God is patient 
that He approves of your sin. The right way to read the book of Judges should lead us to constantly ask the question, Lord, where is there sin in my life? Lord, where have I forgotten You? Lord, which idols have I pursued in the place of Your glory? Lord, how can I repent from my sins? So friend, have you forgotten God? Have you practiced a cultural version of Christianity and forgotten that the biblical Christianity points us to live our lives before the presence of God? Friends, have you sought after idols instead of the one true God? Have you raised to ultimate importance that which God says is just good or just important? Friends, have you sought the meaning and the purpose for your life in things other than God? How would you answer this question? I can't live my life without filling the blank. Any word that is not God that goes in this line is your idol. Sometimes we drive our idols, don't we? We could live in our idols. We could go to our idols 40 hours a week and say, that's where I draw my purpose in life. Sometimes we raise our idols. They live with us. Sometimes our idols, the social media and the popularity that we pursue. Friends, where are these idols? Let us find them and let us break them. Because where idols exist, judgment follows. But where we break our idols, God rules. Now let us consider the word saviors. Now remember I said last week in chapter 2, what the role of the judge, we saw last week the role of the judges uh, uh, was. Judges 2.16 reminds us that the Lord raised up judges who saved them, Israel, out of the hand of those who plundered them. So the purpose of judges was to save Israel. Judges were saviors. And we see here that the Lord raised the saviors whenever the people cried out to Him. We hear the cry of the people of Israel in our text today, in verse 9. The people of Israel, after being oppressed, they cry out to the Lord. In verse 15, again, the people cry out to the Lord. And what does the Lord do? He responds. He answers. He raises, He Himself raises judges to deliver Israel. Friends, even when we're deep in our sin and rebellion, even when we're feeling the, the heavy hand of the Lord in our lives, if we run to the Lord and cry out for help, He answers. He never casts us out when we approach Him in humility, when we approach Him for help, recognizing our sin and weakness and recognizing His strength. So let the message of the book of Judges be one of hope. Don't find yourself in utter desperation and hopelessness in your sin. The message is, if you cry out to the Lord, He will forgive you. 
He will restore you. He will lift you up. Friends, the Lord is eager to hear our cry for help. The first judge we meet is Othniel. We heard of him last week. He is a brother of Caleb. The Hebrew word here is a loose word, so he's likely a distant cousin of Caleb, and he married his daughter. Othniel was from the tribe of Judah, and this is important and relevant because remember, kings come from the tribe of Judah. So the writer of the book of Judges wants Israel to find their king in the right place, in Judah. Not in Benjamin, not in any other tribe. Othniel is here presented as a model judge. He saves the people without any kind of impropriety or immorality. Let's read about let's read a little, a little bit about Othniel. Look at, look at verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rashathaim king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rathashaim. Othniel's story is almost boring, isn't it? The Lord raises him. He obeys the Lord. The Lord gives him victory. I mean, just think of his story compared to stories like Gideon and Samson. Othniel wasn't like them. Othniel was a model to be followed. Othniel is a model after which Israel should look for their kings. Othniel worked boldly for the good of God's people and honestly, sometimes obedience is simple. The path of faithfulness can seem boring i remember talking to a friend in high school and she was telling me how she came to christ after much rebellion and i said oh i envy your testimony because i want god to do something great in my life too and she said how i wish i had your testimony of coming to faith at a young age there is beauty in coming to christ in a simple way we pray that for our children, don't we? Lord, save them at a young age. Othniel's story is almost boring, but it is filled with faithfulness. You'll notice in verse 10 where his power comes from. His power comes from the Spirit. Ministry that is faithful is ministry that is born of the Spirit. And we're going to say much more in this series about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant, which is different, the same Spirit, but He worked different in the Old Covenant, New Covenant. We won't, we won't address that today, but we'll come to that in the weeks ahead. And truly, the way of the Spirit is often the way of simplicity. It, it, there's great beauty in simple, humble, quiet faithfulness. I think when we come to heaven, we're going to realize that the great were not the people that pastored the thousands and preached the great crusades. 
and baptized hundreds. And I think we're going to find out in heaven that faithfulness was actually very quiet. And faithfulness very often went undetected in this world. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows. I just think of how joyous yesterday was. Celebrating the life of Miss Fran. And I go on to think of her offspring and how her simple, faithful gospel ministry has led the other generations of her family to know the Lord. Friends, the Lord knows her faithfulness. Though there may not be books written about Miss Fran, the Lord knows her faithfulness. Oh, that we were all like her, that we would live faithfully, teaching our offspring the truths of the gospel. Perhaps you have a simple testimony too. You were raised at a Christian home and you or your parents faithfully upheld the gospel before you. So you came to faith at an early age. There's a beauty to your testimony. And to speak against this beauty is to speak against the faithfulness of God in your life. Friend, even if your testimony is that you came to faith at a young age, it took the death of Christ to do that. You perhaps don't realize how depraved and wicked your heart was at age four. Oh, but it was. You were not born in righteousness. You were born in sin. And it was the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that transformed your heart. And it was only because of that that you're saved. Friend, if your testimony is that you came to faith at a very early age, your testimony is supernatural because it required the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So praise God for that. Speak of your testimony boldly, proudly, because it is the Lord who has worked miraculously in your heart. But what about Ehud? Let's consider him a little bit. He's a colorful judge, isn't he? He's a children's favorite because of his daggers, dung, and deception. He is a Benjaminite meaning he's from the tribe of Benjamin. While Othniel, who saved the people without impropriety and immorality, Ehud was a master of deception. We already see a little bit of moral decadence, even as we move into our second judge. But he uses deception for good. Let's read about, a little bit about Ehud. Look at verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him by Eglon, sorry, by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it to his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute 
But he himself turned back, to the, uh, turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, and he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. What a story. This story is not embellished in any way, is it? It's very raw, isn't it? But this story speaks of the, the, the brave man, Ehud. But what an unlikely hero. He was industrious, creating his own weapon. He was courageous, putting himself alone, vulnerable before a wicked king. He does so for the sake of the people. He was different, unexpected. He was left-handed. Likely, the guards failed to check him because swords are kept on the right thigh so they can be pulled out. He struck Eglon and he did so in an unexpected way. He hid his dagger in the right thigh. He was deceptive. He did bring a tribute to the king but ultimately, the tribute that he bought, brought was a message from God delivered through a sword. The tribute was not delivered in the way that Eglon expected. Ehud showed Eglon the bravery of deception. Deception is a great tool of war. This very week, this very week we celebrated the 79th anniversary of D-Day the day their American troops landed on Normandy Beach, completely surprising the Germans, who expected the invasion to take place miles away from where it actually happened. D-Day was an exercise in deception used for good. And as we see here, one dagger hidden in an unexpected, unexpected place, was the destruction of the great Eglon. This initiated an uprising led by Ehud that set Israel free. Ehud wasn't too strong. He didn't have many soldiers. He wasn't powerful. All he had was deception and a small weapon he was a normal man an average man and yet through the hand of a powerful god he saved israel from oppression not unlike ehud is our third ju judge shimgar also a common man we know virtually nothing about shimgar we only have one verse 
on him, verse 31, 37. He is the first of six minor judges. We're going to see most of the minor judges in chapter 10. But verse 31 tells us that Shemgar was the son of Anath. And honestly, that tells us nothing. We know that he killed 600 men, 600 Palestines. We don't know if this happened at once, if this happened over a period of time. We don't know if this means that he led an army that killed 600 Philistines. We just know that he killed 600 Philistines. What we do know is that his weapon of choice was odd. He didn't wield a sword or spear or javelin. No, he used a farming instrument, an ox gold an instrument used to direct animals. Some believe that because of his name, Shemgar wasn't even a Jew. Shemgar was a common man, a blue-collar worker, not specialized in war or weapons of war. He was an average man. But verse 31 tells us that Shemgar also saved Israel. Perhaps a better way to translate that verse is even Shemgar saved Israel. I think this is the point of these judges, even the little information that we have on Shemgar. There was nothing special about them. These were common folks, folks like you and me, but they believed God. And this is what makes God's people strong. This is true of the church. Central Baptist Church, this is true of you. This is true of us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, For consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's the point of these judges. We look at them and we say, nothing special about them. He must be God. God must be great. This must be our desire, that the world will look at us and say, there's nothing great about the people of that church. Why are they able to accomplish great things? It must be because they're God. Is great. This is true of us. We are weak people with a great Savior. It is not our power, abilities, or strength that move the kingdom of God. So this is good news. Do you want to accomplish great things for God, but you feel inadequate, weak? You are precisely the kind of person God is looking for. I have a friend. His name is Richard Sanchez. Richard was born in Nicaragua, and when he was born... For eight minutes, he wasn't able to breathe, so his brain had no oxygen. Because of this, Richard has lived a life with significant mobility handicaps and significant speech impediments. And yet, throughout his life, Richard has lived to serve God. And in spite of his physical challenges, Richard is a pastor and has dedicated his life to the mission field reaching 
the Mosquito Indians in the forests of Nicaragua. Richard preaches the gospel. Richard builds churches. And Richard has planted dozens of Baptist congregations throughout different countries in Central America. God has called Richard, the weak man, to accomplish great things for His glory. God calls unlikely saviors for His people because when flawed, wicked, weak, and broken people accomplish great things for God, God is exalted and man is not. This is why I said in the beginning that the weakness we experience in Christ should promote in us both humility and boldness. Before we move on to our last points, I'd like to just say one more thing about these faithful and yet inadequate saviors. Look at verse 11. So the land had rest after the ministry of, uh, after the ministry of Othniel for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. And actually, let's jump to chapter 4, verse 1, and look at that verse. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. The faithfulness of the people depended heavily on the life of the judges. The pattern of Israel is as the leader goes, so go the people. As we are told last week, Judges 2.19 but whenever the judge died, they, Israel, turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. This is the, the moral decadence. Going after other, other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Here we see a classic example of external change without internal transformation. Israel saw some great leaders. Israel saw some great kings. Israel saw some great prophets but israel struggled to obey god israel forgot that god was there israel was like children who behave when the teacher is in the classroom but when the teacher steps out their true nature comes out indeed israel needed a king who could not only just change them on the outside, but change them at a heart level. Israel needed a leader like Jesus. Friends, do you sense that in your life, you need deep spiritual transformation? Do you need to break free from patterns of sin and idolatry that have enslaved you? Do you feel ashamed that the people that what the people perceive about you on the outside simply is not true of you on the inside? Friends, do you need to be transformed? Friend, you need to experience Christ. The path of change the Bible lays out for us is the path of faith and repentance. We believe the righteousness of God we repent from our unrighteousness and we confess our sins and God transforms us. While these judges were inadequate because, inadequate because they died, Jesus was 
adequate for the very same reason. Because he died. The judges died without providing spiritual transformation for the people. But Jesus died providing victory. For Jesus' death was not defeat. The cross was not the end. Jesus died, He was buried, and He rose. Jesus died destroying the power of sin and death that enslaves us. No other leader can say that. No other leader can say, I've defeated death and sin, and the pangs of the devil have no power over you. Only Jesus can say that. Only Jesus has resurrected. No other religious movement or philosophy can offer you a Savior like Jesus. This is why we're Christians, because we have Christ. And in Him, we have salvation. And in Him, we have the power of transformation. All of the judges died and stayed dead. But Jesus died, and yet He lives. And if He lives, we can live with Him too. If you're not a Christian, you may say, okay, what do I need to do? You need to believe Jesus. You need to believe He is who He says He is, and He's done what He said He's done. And you need to abandon every confidence that you have in yourself to be made right before God. Abandon every project of self-improvement and run to Christ. He will save you and He will transform you. Briefly, let us consider the last point. Let us consider sovereignty. The overarching principle that informs the entire book of Judges is the fact that God is sovereign. As a matter of fact, this is the overarching principle that informs the entirety of the Bible. God is sovereign. So I want to just point out two things, two areas in which God is sovereign. First, I want you to see that God is sovereign over judgment. We see this in two ways. The judgment over Israel. Look at verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rashathaim, the king of Mesopotamia. And you see the same thing later in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened, the Lord strengthened Eglon, the, thing, the king of Moab, against Israel. Israel. It is God who raised the very enemies that oppressed His people. But God loves Israel. Doesn't He? Yes, He does. He did back then. He still does today. And He will forever. And this is why He brings judgment on them. So they would relent from their rebellion. Friend, if you love the Lord, He will not let you wander in your foolish ways. He will teach you grace through suffering. But we also see the sovereignty of God over mercy. In a strange way, God shows mercy to Israel by showing judgment, not only to Israel, but to their enemies. Look at verse 10. Speaking of Othniel's victory, and the Lord gave Cushan, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim 
king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. Now look at Ehud, verse 28. He says, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Friend, this is where boldness comes from. This is where the boldness of the judges came from. They were simple men, not filled with anything great or special in and of themselves, but they knew that God was the avenger of His people. Oh friend, do you know the weight? Do you feel the weight and the burden of this world? Do you feel like at times the battle against your enemies overwhelm you? Do you sense that your enemies have you surrounded? Do you feel like you are one against the mob? Friends, even when we are just one, one man plus God is always a majority. Are you afraid you may lose the battle? Do what Israel did. Call on the Lord and He will deliver you from your enemies. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, oh, that we would have simple faith that You are stronger than our enemies, be they the enemy without or the enemy within. Father, deliver us from our enemy. Teach us to walk in faith. Day by day we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.